This week on The Futurists, Valerie Plain. Critical thought is in such short supply uh, because we, as humans, we love to feel affirmed and validated. So when our views are confirmed or amplified by, say, propaganda or something, well, of course that's the truth. It's, of, of course, you know, and we, we have to be on guard against that. Hey, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik, your host. This week, my co-host Brett is traveling once again. Yes, he is like a tumbleweed. The guy never stays in one place for more than a couple days. We'll catch up with him sooner or later. I think this week he's in the Middle East. And it's a bummer because I know that he would be interested in talking to our guest. He's keenly interested in the topic. Um, so we'll have to find a way to get the two of you together. This week, I'm talking to Valerie Plame. Valerie, welcome to The Futurists. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted I'm excited to, to have you here. I'm sure some of the folks listening are familiar with your name, then others are going to say, wait a minute, I sort of vaguely recall her name from some period before President Obama's era. So we'll have to re refresh those people's memories. Before I do that, I want to let folks know um, the way we were introduced. Uh, so I'm in the process of organizing an event that's going to happen in Santa Fe, New Mexico, in the beginning of November, on November 10th and 11th. Um, the event I'm working on is called Creative Experience in Santa Fe, so CXSF. And um, it's a very small gathering for people who are concerned about the new technologies, artificial intelligence, uh, uh, 3D worlds or immersive media, and the metaverse. Uh, and our question is, is, is there a way for us to harness those technologies to build resilient communities? And we've assembled a very interesting cross-section of people from the Southwest and other parts of the world uh, who are convening to talk about that, to, to find a, a positive way to apply those technologies. And while we were organizing this event, a friend of ours, a mutual friend, introduced me to Valerie, who it turns out is organizing another event that's going to occur on the exact same dates, on November 10th and 11th in Santa Fe. So someone said, why don't the two of you get together and talk? Uh, so Valerie, as a way of introduction, just tell me a little bit about what, what you're doing in Santa Fe in November. Yes. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, uh, your conference and mine, Spies, Lies, and Nukes, there's definitely a Venn diagram uh, where uh, some mutual interesting ideas in intersect. So uh, this is our third running. Mm. It will be November 10th, 11th, and 12th uh, mm. at La Fonda. And I basically called up my former CIA colleagues, operations officers, truly heroes, uh, I have nothing but the utmost respect for the speakers I've invited. I mean, these they really are the real deal. They have walked the walk. Um, and so they will be coming and we will be talking hot topics, hot places in the world. Of course, Russia, Ukraine, China, Israel, Gaza. Uh, I have a former head of CIA disguise to talk about, uh, you know, how we kept our operations safe in really hostile environments. Mm. We'll be talking a little bit about what we will be talking about today, the ubiquitous technical uh, environment, surveillance. Mm. And it's open to the general public. Uh, like yours, it's intimate. I wanted it that way so the folks can interact easily with speakers and speak to them on the sidelines. And uh, I'm really excited and proud to put that together. So if your listeners oh. are interested, they can find more information at spieslies.nukes.com. 
Basil is nukes. So um, the last word, nukes, that's important because your expertise is in nuclear proliferation, or I should say preventing non-proliferation. Non-proliferation. Yeah. Yeah, non uh, tell us a little bit about what that means. What is non-proliferation? Right. Essentially, my job at the CIA was making sure that bad actors, whether they're terrorists, rogue nation states, black marketeers, do not get access to nuclear capability. And that meant recruiting sources within the supply chain, of which there's many in, that go into a, any nuclear program, uh, de delivery uh, the the scientists, the businessmen, and try to get some good intelligence to shut down networks. Uh, I worked with a variety of teams through the years, and I loved what I did. Now, when, when people talk about nuclear proliferation, um, you know, there are plenty of countries that would love to get their hands on nuclear weapons. Actually, there are plenty of non-entities uh, yeah. entities that would like to get their hands on nuclear weapons. And actually, the international community does a pretty good job of policing this. Uh, you know, so it turns out that the expertise to enrich nuclear um, nuclear uh, energy, you know, to, to to create a weapon, not an easy thing to come by. I know you can find the instructions on the internet. That's what everyone always says. But but you know, going from those instructions to actually doing it, that's a tricky thing to do, and it requires uh, specialty equipment. And so, what you would do is intercept that equipment in the supply chain. Um, which are the countries that are best at producing these things besides the United States? The actual widgets, you mean? The, yeah, the like the Germans parts? always seem to yeah. turn up, right? When it's about well, exporting it's, stuff into the Middle yeah, East. Highly, no surprise, uh, the highly industrialized nations. Uh, Germany is really good. Uh, Austria, Switzerland, it precise, you can imagine. They're known for, you know, Swiss are known for making great clocks. Well, right. that precision... Uh, the high, the machines that go into that, um, the other uh, other things that are necessary are testing, making sure that your gimbals are right, and you know there, there are so many different aspects that go into a whole program. Mm -hmm. So uh, our search to find these bad actors was truly worldwide. And and I mean, how did I you do that? Like you know, if you, when you worked for the CIA. Yeah, I know you were working in Europe, I think in places like Belgium and Greece and sometimes Turkey and so forth. Um, how would you like kind of inveigle yourself into the network of people <laughs> who are smuggling this equipment? Because it's all, you know, under controls, right? So it's not like you can just right. go out there and advertise and say, hi, you can buy centrifuges here at Centrifuges RS. Uh, exactly. Although we did call... Um, Famously, the Pakistani nuclear engineer, who's actually a metallurgist, A.Q. Khan, who just died, mm -hmm. I think, last year, um, we called him, you know, we were joking around saying, you know, you want a nuclear weapon? 1-800-A.Q. Khan. Because he yeah. really was selling everything on the black market. Uh, without him, we wouldn't have to worry about Iran or North Korea having nuclear programs. But um, back to your question, it's this is what we're trained to do at the CIA. Uh, there's in pedagogical terms, it's uh, you know, spot, assess, develop, recruit. Uh, you are looking for those people that have access, uh, whether it's in the supply chain or whether in the actual program them itself as a scientist. Um, you're assessing them. Uh, who are they? What would their potential motivations be to want to cooperate with the with the United States? What's going on in their lives? Uh, there's as many different motivations as there are individuals, as you might imagine. And then recruitment. Uh, ideally, 
this is by the time you reach that stage of actually making the recruitment, you should know what the answer will be. There should be no surprises. Occasionally mm. it does happen, but you have, again, this is in a traditional sense of recruiting rather than a cold pitch where you, like in the run-up to the war with Iraq, there was no time. You just kind of mm. went in and said what, you know, see what the answer would be. But typically when you're recruiting, uh, ideally you want your target to say, what took you so long? Because- yeah. You have built up a reservoir of trust. They know that you are going to keep them safe. Uh, they are working with you for whatever reason it might be, money, ideology, a combination, ego, whatever. Uh, so that's how that methodology works. So you have to be sort of like a charming psychologist in order to like basically make friends very quickly with people, get to know them, and then sort of assess uh, their psychological strengths and weaknesses and their motivations and so forth. If someone's got financial trouble, great, that's a lever. If someone's like going through a divorce, that might be an opportunity. If Correct. someone has an ax to grind or, you know, a brother who's been imprisoned unfairly or something, you know, there's all sorts of motivations that people have. Um, now, my knowledge of spying is all from like James Bond movies and books. So unfortunately, I've got kind of like the Hollywood version of spying in mind. And what I know about James Bond movies is like, that's exactly how you would not operate if you were a spy. Like, don't flash a lot of money. Don't go to a casino. Don't Yeah, carry but they're anything. so entertaining, right? It's super fun, right? They've created this kind of romantic world. Is it really that romantic or is it, uh, is it less, uh, is it a little bit more um, bureaucratic? Like, tell me about the reality. Maybe. Yes and yes. I mean, there are elements, but there's, you know, punctuated by long periods of boredom, uh, mm -hmm. depending on what it is you're doing. No, the, the reality of intelligence gathering is, uh, one, usually a gun in the room does not help with intelligence collection. Mm -hmm. uh, you have built up a relationship, ideally. Uh, I don't think you cannot fake being authentically, genuinely interested in someone. They know that uh, you have to build, you have to make them feel safe, that you will keep them safe. In some cases, of course, if their cooperation with the United States government was known, they, they'd be killed, uh, you know, yeah. so uh, very simple. Um, and uh and, and you're reading all of this and you're mm -hmm. superimposing upon those psychological elements what you know from your training of how to keep your operation safe. Mm -hmm. And you're constantly pushing the ball, you know, down the field as best you can. You have as an ops officer, which is what we call ourselves, not spies, that's who we recruit. But I have always my mission in mind, what I'm trying to do in the larger picture. I see. Okay. Now um, let's talk about the context you're doing this in. So you're not doing this in the United States. You're typically doing this in some other country where they have their own domestic intelligence service. That's probably trying to keep an eye on you, or at least someone like you, they know that people like you are operating on their, on their grounds. And it might also be the case that the person you're trying to recruit isn't even a citizen of that country. They might be uh, yeah. working the there embassy yeah. or working. And so um, there's a, there, you know, it's like, the old cliche of a spy going after a spy, you know, people into different intelligence services are trying to keep track of who's dealing with whom. Is it dangerous? Uh, is there a possibility that you get caught? Or is this well understood? I, I, I you know, when you go yes, to Belgium, like, do they know that you're a CIA agent? It, it, it absolutely can be dangerous. 
for many years, we had what would be called hostile environments, and that would have been, say, the Soviet Union at the height of yeah. the Cold War, in China, in India, where there has long been, because of author- more authoritarian regimes, a a history of ubiquitous surveillance. You know, you pay someone 50 cents on the street in India just to watch for the Westerner to walk by and he reports to his service. Well, you know, how do, how do you how do you conduct operations securely in an environment like New Delhi, which is just teeming with people that are watching you walk by? Hmm. Uh, however, that has changed. And I'm sure we'll get into this in a little bit more detail mm-hmm. going forward. But uh, this ubiquitous technical surveillance, which uh, is f- far more advanced than what we've, uh, you know, in, in past operational environments. And now you have the intelligence world has to consider we're in a time where it's not just the the more classic hostile environments of Moscow at night. Um, it can it can be anywhere. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and it can even- be the device in your pocket that's uh, betraying you. Absolutely. Look at London, which, of course, is a very westernized, uh, you know, it's a Western capital. Mm -hmm. And yet their surveillance is uh, really top notch. I mean, they know who's coming, who's going and and what are the most surveilled places on the planet. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit about total information awareness to use Admiral Poindexter's term. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll get into that. And, and you know, these days, a lot of folks are worried about artificial intelligence taking their job or displacing labor. I have to imagine in spycraft, that's actually an issue. So we'll talk a bit about that. But before we do, there's another topic I need to cover here, because for folks who are not familiar with you, I think it's important for us to little, learn a little bit about your past. And you've been telling us so far about building a trusted network of people, uh, people who you're really extending yourself to on a personal level to build mm-hmm. trust. And to do that successfully, you have to know that you can trust the government that you're representing, that the government's got your back. Um, and in your case, that was true for many years while you worked for the CIA until it wasn't. And you learned about it in the most dramatic way. Tell me a little bit about what happened uh, under the Bush administration, because I think that'll refresh people's memories about why they know this name, Valerie Plain. Right. Well, what happened was in July 2003, my then husband, Ambassador Joe Wilson, wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times entitled, What I Did Not Find in Africa. And in it, he went after the primary rationale that the Bush administration gave for taking us into this uh, occupation of Iraq, the war and uh, the conquering and the occupation of Iraq, which was an imminent threat of nuclear attack. Remember, you know, we don't want to see the smoking gun in the shape of a mushroom cloud. And in the op-ed, Joe wrote, like, this this is bogus. This is not true. Um, I know this. And uh, it's completely bogus. And well, he was the ambassador to that place. So he he was well aware of what he was. What and it's were. important to note that in the he he was the acting ambassador in Iraq, in Baghdad during the first Gulf War with Saddam mm-hmm. Hussein. And uh and in the run-up to the war. He spoke publicly often uh, 
vociferously about how stupid it was to go to how stupid this war of choice was. Why and that was it was risky no at the time, right? Because if we if if people are listening can recall to the the time after the 9-11 attacks, that period of time was a period of intense patriotic fervor in the United States. Even in Congress, uh, the opposing party, the Democratic Party, was hesitant to voice objections or even criticize or investigate uh, any of the claims that were being made by the Bush administration mm-hmm. in the run-up to Operation Desert Storm because of this dip- this sort of uh, fervor of, uh, of patriotism. Americans wanted the government to do something, and they wanted the government to punch somebody back. And so it was kind of indifferent to a lot of Americans who they punched back. And Uh, President George Bush took the opportunity to punch back at Iraq, even though, in fact, they had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. It was a great lie that was told to the American public. But at the time, to call out that great lie took tremendous courage. And one of the few people that did it was Ambassador Joe Wilson. so the government retaliated. The government struck back. They did. Yeah, we could have a whole conversation on uh, the lead up to the war, what what caused it and how we still haven't come to grips with it. Mm-hmm. But what happened after this op-ed piece came out in July 2003, a week later, a conservative columnist by the name of Robert Novak, who's mm-hmm. now dead, he wrote a column about uh, Joe's op-ed, and he in it he said, "Oh, and by the way, his wife Valerie Plame works for the CIA, and she sent him to uh, find. You know, she sent him to Niger, and then what he was referring to a year before the CIA sent Joe to Niger to check out these reports of yellow cake uranium going from Niger to Iraq. Any in any case." Immediately as I read that article at like 5 a.m. in the Washington Post in our home in Washington, I knew that my covert career was over. The assets that had worked for me or even people uh, that, um, you know, knew me in a uh, in a benign fashion were at risk. Uh, and then on a personal level, I, I was worried sick about my three-year-old twins uh, because of the personal security aspect of it all. So, um, and that started years of like this crazy down the rabbit hole political scandal that was, it it, it affected, of course, both my husband and me. So both of us were embroiled and it, it just, it was a really, really dark time where I feel looking back that it was just, I was in survival mode for mm-hmm. much of it. In 2007, the vice president's Cheney's chief of staff, Scooter Libby, was convicted on four out of five counts, uh, including an obstruction of justice and lying. Um, and I, it, it's taken me, it's hard to believe that this year was the 20th year of our invasion of Iraq. So it was a moment to pause and I believe that the United States is still not to terms with what our government did. It no, lied have, to we, us. We certainly haven't. You know, uh, millions yeah. of lives have been ruined in the process of that war. Um, and we also haven't come to terms with what happened to you. Uh, you know, to, to clarify for folks who are listening, that Robert Novak piece that she mentioned that appeared in the Washington Post that blew her identity, uh, basically blew her cover and revealed that she was a CIA agent. That was a kind of retaliation. Uh, the way he obtained that knowledge uh, about uh, about Valerie Plame working for the CIA 
That was the subject of some debate and some investigation, and it was never actually clear who leaked mm-hmm. it to him, although a number of people have been implicated in the matter. Richard Armitage in the State Department, Scooter Libby, as you mentioned, who worked for Vice President Cheney. Certainly Vice President Cheney, Carl Rove were certainly suspected, suspected. there was allegations made and so forth. Um, but like many things in Washington, the matter really never got resolved. And you know, Scooter Libby got punished and went to jail or didn't, didn't go to jail. No, he, he didn't go to jail. And he was pardoned um, by Trump in 2017. And and he wasn't even the one who like gave the information away. We're talking about leaking information. These days it's important because, of course, some people are saying, uh, you know, there, there's there's new focus on this because of President Trump and, and uh, his, uh, you know, unauthorized uh, taking of large oh. numbers of uh, confidential documents with, you know, without any justification. Um, so anyway, before we diverge into that, the point here is that you had worked loyally for the United States government in a role as an undercover, undercover operative. Correct. I was uh, covert despite the best efforts of uh, the Bush White House advocates to make it out as though um, I was just a glorified secretary. I mean, we mm. we were called traitors. We were called, you know, all manner of things, uh, trying yet, to make the story And yet you worked about, for a number of years to prevent proliferation of the nuclear weapons. Yeah, weapon. that was you, my you job. Actually, and I, I love my job and I was proud to serve my country. Okay. So that's the history for folks who are listening. Um, and since that time, you've done a number of things. You've been a writer, uh, you've run for Congress, uh, you've, uh, you've gotten involved in political activities and so forth. Um, we're going to talk more about the future of espionage and your new interest in artificial intelligence after the break. But now we're going to take a short break. Before we do that, what we love to do is just get acquainted a little bit with the people who we're talking to in the show. Um, so we ask a few short questions. These are these are for short answers. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a couple quick questions. This is this is the lightning round. Uh, so okay, Valerie Plame, um, tell me about your first experience thinking about the future. Maybe it was a science fiction story or a science fiction film that you saw as a child? Oh, well, I think that's kind of easy. I, uh, Star Wars, 1976. Great. I, I remember sitting in the theater. I mean, we had never, I know this is hard for people that are you know younger, but the special effects, oh, wow. Uh, you know, <laughs> which today, of course, are a little risible, but uh, it, back in the day, that was, phenomenal and the story which which of course is really based on good evil you know themes that are uh weave through humanity forever and yet brought to the future and so Mm -hmm. that just that's a memory that i sticks on my head i was a kid sitting in that theater yeah super duper okay next question uh uh, in this in this show, we're always interested in people who are thinking and talking about the future. Is there anyone who influenced you, anyone who inspired you that you can think of, uh, maybe a writer or a teacher or someone who taught you to think about the future or gave you an idea about the future that inspired you? Oh, that's such a great question to think about. Um, I suppose when you, as a young adult, and I had just started in the CIA and sort of like, well, believe me, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It's not like I grew up thinking I wanted to be a spy, but all of a sudden being around, you know, there you are. And uh, we're going through our pretty intensive training, but to be able to work with incredibly smart people with integrity and putting it into context, I guess, of what we were doing and why, and then thinking about in the 
broad sense, I don't mean to sound like Pollyanna here, but you know, like this was the height of the Cold War. And what's at stake here are these principles and values that we hold dear. And how do you carry that ahead by what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not science fiction stuff, but it made yeah. me think it it put it into context for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. So it was a chance to put your values into action, which is always inspiring. And by the way, a good way to proceed into the future. Uh, okay. Is there any particular forecast that you think is really resonant? You know, is there a particular prediction or forecast that you've heard that you're aware of that you think is really pertinent right now for our audience? Mm. I would just have to say, because uh, we are taping this in the midst of all the, in, uh, the what's going on in Israel and Gaza, and will there be a wider, wider regional conflict? And so I, I enjoy uh, something that drops in my email box every morning. It's letters from an American by Heather Cox Richardson. She's just like straight, you know, it's like just the facts, ma'am. Occasionally she'll throw in her a little opinionated, but uh, she. I just love in this world we live in of opinion all the time. She just kind of lays it out. Yeah, and it's, it's a have, good newsletter. It's letters from a historian by uh, letters from a historian. Yes, from Heather Cox uh, uh, Richardson, and um, she's a professor of American history, and she's writing about history as it unfolds on a daily basis. So, if you haven't read the newsletter, millions of people, millions of people read that newsletter. Uh, for the American listeners, it's a chance to understand American history as it unfolds. She writes it every single day, and she's been doing mm-hmm. it since the Trump administration. Kind of an, a heroic effort. It is a heroic you know. effort, and I so appreciate it. So that's Great. right now because it's just like too much news. So mm-hmm. she helps uh, get you know sort it through. She tells you what the his, uh, the future historians are going to notice about this particular episode or what happened today in today's news or something. Okay, that's great fun. Folks, we're talking to Valerie Plain on The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursick. We're going to take a short break. Stick, stay with us, though, because after the break, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence and total information awareness. It's actually coming true. We'll see you in just a minute after these announcements. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Hey, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik, and this week I'm talking to Valerie Plain. Uh, Valerie is a former CIA operative or officer, uh, and she's been sharing with us uh, some personal context and some historical context to help us understand how spycraft has evolved. Now, before we jump into the future, what I thought would be helpful is for people to understand the different ways that governments use intelligence. How do they gather intelligence and why do they gather intelligence? In the US, we have a bunch of different agencies. We've been talking about the the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, but of course there's also a domestic security force, which is the FBI. And then there's things like the NSA. And I think that's where people start to get a little fuzzy because the NSA by design doesn't really have a very high profile. Can you tell us about the different mechanisms the government has for gathering information and what they do with it? 
Sure. First of all, it's important to understand there's at least 17 agencies, there may be more, uh, right? Oh my gosh. uh, Yeah, 17 at last count under the United States uh, that are dedicated to intelligence gathering of some sort. For instance, the Treasury Department has their own financial intelligence sector. Uh, The State Department has the uh, 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 INR. Anyway, you know, in their own intelligence shop. Uh, But the big ones that you hear about, of course, CIA, primarily, although not exclusively, they try to do human, human intelligence. That is what we were talking about, recruiting human sources to provide intelligence, actionable intelligence to U.S. policymakers. National Security Agency, NSA, they're devoted to cryptology and signals intelligence. They also do open source intelligence. Signals intelligence is what it sounds like, you know, picking up uh, all sorts of signals using satellites and other means. Uh, Open source is what it sounds like, that there's intelligence actually in the public domain. You just don't realize it because, but it helps connect Newspaper headlines. Yeah, exactly. It's it's connecting dots. Um, Of course, each branch of the military has their own intelligence uh, gathering mechanisms as well. And after 9-11, and I thought this is not a great idea, but they did it anyway, uh, they gathered all these different pieces. They thought they would basically, Congress uh, passed a law that you needed to put in yet another layer of of, of uh, bureaucracy, and that is, of course, an, um, the NDI, National, Defense, uh, National Director of Intelligence, and that office ostensibly is coordinating all of these. I thought that's what the CIA was supposed to do in the aftermath of World War II and Pearl Harbor, but no, they needed another layer. So um, there's, uh, on. I think it- And it the National be- NDI reports into Homeland Security, doesn't it? Uh, no. So you have another, oh no, that's a different thing? Yeah, it's a different See? thing. Well, <laughs> Homeland Security, I think, feeds into NDI. Um, oh, obviously, okay. there's simply too much- uh, I I believe that our whole intelligence sector th- across the board is bloated, um, but that's a conversation for another time. Uh, no, it's a really important one. After 9-11, there was an enormous growth in the in the kind of intelligence industrial oh, sector. Oh, All these big black buildings that were built around the Beltway in Washington that no one knows what's inside of them. Uh, yeah, they're and all funded by taxpayers. And it's from a fire hose. And how can any one person or organization make sense of it all? Um, so th- there's some real problems there. Uh, but that gives you the idea, the, the various uh, basic breakdown of in, in different intelligence and but, where it's now, now, President Trump has been pretty critical of um, of the intelligence agencies. And that's partly because they released some non-flattering information about him and he took it very personally. He's famously got a thin skin, so he retaliated. How accurate do you think the criticisms uh, of the CIA and the FBI and the other intelligence services are? Uh, uh, the, The terrible answer of it depends. Some of that criticism is absolutely rightly deserved. Um, every everything what I personally saw in the aftermath of 9/11 was that we were abysmally short of qualified lang- uh, language speakers you know we had like two yeah. people who spoke Darshi from uh yeah. you know that you you uh 
in Afghanistan and Farsi speakers and Arabic speakers, all the hotspots. And we started uh, bringing in contractors. Um, so there was this big revolving door. You would be trained at U.S. taxpayers' expense, to hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. You would leave, go work for what we call what we call known as the Beltway Bandits, and come back in. Um, and so there, there is a yes, there's a lot of problems uh, of how it's structurally set up and the bureaucracy around it. That said. Uh, there's a lot, you know, there's people with, thank goodness, they go every day and um, really trying to keep America safe. Uh, and no right. one knows who their names are. They eat their lunch at their desk and they are working all out to try to make us safer. Keep us and That's safe. the thing I think a lot of people don't realize. It's a dangerous world. And there are lots of people that would like to knock the United States down a peg or two. Um and they're tireless. Uh, they're working tirelessly to do that. And it's those nameless people in the security agencies that keep Americans safe. We tend to take that for granted, right? We don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, for security reasons, of course, we don't learn much about those organizations. So we're not really aware of them. Um, and as a result, it's pretty easy for Americans to get complacent. Do you think we are too complacent? Do you think this world is rife with dangers that we should be more alive to? Yes. Um... I believe there's two existential threats. Uh, one that I worked on for my career, which is the nuclear threat. The other one, of course, is climate change. And um, which I'm and uh, <laughs> quick on their heels is something we'll be talking about a little bit more is artificial intelligence as a mm -hmm. national security threat. Uh, I, I disagree, though, with your statement that we're complacent. I feel for those that are reading the news, uh, there's sort of like one dumpster fire after another, whether it's our own domestic politics or, you know, what what's happening in Russia, Ukraine, and now Israel, Gaza. Uh, it's it, it, it people I, I people are angry, upset, um, mm -hmm. and you see this in playing out in our really vicious domestic po you know, politics day in, day out. To some extent, that's the that's a byproduct of information warfare, which is not mm -hmm. too distinct from what we've been talking about. Uh, so far, we've been talking about gathering information, but information can be a weapon depending on how it's deployed. And now we have social networks and you know hyper connectivity. Everyone's online all the time, and the gatekeepers, the the newspaper editors, and the and the, the publishers and so forth, the, the apparatus used to filter the news for us. Um, those gatekeepers are gone. Now you can get information all the time from anybody. And other countries have used this to great effect to destabilize democracies, not just the United States, but around the world. We've seen this happen in the Philippines, in Thailand, in India, um, other parts of the Middle East, and in South America. And so we're starting in Eastern Europe. Uh, you're seeing uh, disinformation campaigns waged on a daily basis. And uh, in some cases, those are uh, directed by governments. Uh, we know that the Chinese government has the 50 cent army, so-called, because that's what they're paid to post uh, information. Um, the Russians have a policy of disinformation called uh, asymmetric warfare, nonlinear warfare. They've been practicing that for 20 years. This is not new. They're well, they're well honed in these skills. 
American citizens are not that aware of it. And sometimes we fall prey to it when we're on social media. Uh, we'll share something that is pure disinformation. Uh, we'll share something that is confusing to us. It seems to resonate with something we feel emotionally. Uh, and I found that outrage is a very easy way to get people manipulated. Uh, if you if you encounter something in your social media feed that causes you to feel outraged, think twice before you share it, because chances are the person that posted it is trying to manipulate you. And they're trying to bypass the intellectual filters. They're trying to get an emotional reaction so that you don't think twice about it or think critically about it. And that's a way to kind of disable your own intellect uh, and turn you into a useful tool. We see that happening all the time. I think most Americans don't take it too seriously. As far as I can tell, anecdotally, uh, people tend to dismiss this. So like, well, maybe that's happening, but it's not happening to me. I'm smart enough. You know, we tell ourselves this story, but I don't think they realize the degree to which we are subject to this. Mm -hmm. How you can be detected is when you go to another country, uh, you discover that the social media feeds in other countries contain very different kinds of memes and very kind of different kinds of conversations. An example, for instance, very obvious example, if you enjoy TikTok in the United States, I don't use it anymore, but if some people do, some people like it a lot. If you go to Taiwan and you look at TikTok, it's filled with conspiracy theories. It's just like a, basically it's like a cable TV channel that's full of nothing but conspiracy theories. And why would that be the case? What's that about? Well, the Chinese have a policy of creating strategic uh, dis, uh, disagreements, basically, the fo the, to get people to not trust anything that they read, to start to question everything they read. This undermines democracies because it makes it hard for people to trust their politicians that are leading them or to, to trust perhaps politicians in the opposite party. People don't know who to trust. Uh, so just that idea of fostering conspiracy is a way to undermine faith in democracy. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit more about how the intelligence agencies navigate in this enormous sea, this exponentially growing sea of disinformation and social media, and some of it's accurate, some of it's variably accurate, and some of it's total nonsense. You know, it's stuff that's been fabricated. How does an intelligence agency deal with that? Because now it's like you're hunting for a, a, a needle in a stack of needles. Mm -hmm. uh, Robert, you set the table really well, uh, the real dangers that are there. And we know as a fact from 2016 on in the 2016 election, the Russians, who by the way are, are a relatively poor country and have few mm -hmm. resources, but recognized the low, the low cost of information warfare. And they set up an entire shop devoted to this, to causing Americans uh, to generating disagreement. Many mm -hmm. online accounts, uh, and they they were so good at it to how to get into those wedge cultural issues, and the next thing you know, Americans are shouting at each other, and worse, you know, right? That you know the the incidents of death threats over school board members and so forth is, and and this has really been eroding at our democracy. I think there's it, it is. It's relatively cheap, and they have been really, really good at it because Americans are more divided than ever. And I, mm. this is just me talking. This is just my speculation. Of course, we have seen that as well in Israel, right, where it's been a mm. deeply divided country. We've seen protests for months and months on end in Israel. And the next thing you know, they've taken their eye off the ball, and they had this horrific attack from Hamas. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's worth asking the question anyway of, you know, were there any outside influencers in Israeli society to generate, like, who benefits from that? 
Hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, we we don't need to zero in on, on Israel. That's a very complex situation that's unfolding right now. Yeah. But you could say the same about many other countries. Uh, I think of the Philippines because I know that these kinds of campaigns have been waged there. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also a factor in Hungary where the populace is split. Oh, no question. But even things like the Brexit campaign, uh, people are unaware of or don't want to find out about the extent of Russian interference in the Brexit campaign, how much they funded the Brexit campaign. Okay, but my interest here today is more to find out about how intelligence agencies deal with this because they're, yeah. you know, they're in the job of finding good information. And I would say the qu- amount of good information relative to the explosion of bad information is going to make that job a lot harder. Does artificial intelligence help here? Can it find patterns and help them discern things and, and maybe be a little more efficient? Or is artificial intelligence a problem? Yeah, that uh, what a great question. I think we're in a midst of tremendous tra- uh, a period of transition right now in our intelligence services. I what I know best is the CIA, and I'm no longer mm-hmm. there. But from what I know from speaking to colleagues and so forth, they are putting their arms around this and really grappling with this. How? What does this look like going forward? Um, in terms of both operations and security, talking about that ubiquitous uh, technical surveillance, uh, as well as moving through an environment which can be rife, if not overrun, by misinformation or propaganda. It (laughs) It makes everything harder, but having that knowledge and what you were talking about earlier actually... Uh, um, critical thought is in such short supply uh, because we, as humans, we love to feel affirmed and validated. So when our views are confirmed or amplified by, say, propaganda or something, well, of course that's the truth. It's of, of course, you know, it, and we can't, we have to be on guard against that. Uh, at the end of the day, the people serving intelligence services are humans as well. So we have to, uh, you know, and have those impulses that you want to be validated all the time. You have to be trained to constantly think about that and and you apply critical thought. And that and let's it, talk it about the enemy of critical so thinking. The enemy of critical thinking is confirmation bias. That's where you yeah. hold an opinion closely that you you kind of filter the information that's coming in and only see the information that reinforces uh, what you already believe. Mm-hmm. Of course, this is a great way to make a big strategic blunder, right? And as a forecaster, I have to be very conscious of this because this is the number one people number one way people go wrong with forecasting or uh, any kind of future planning is confirmation bias. You know, when you hold an idea so tightly, you identify with it so much that you start to look at the world through that lens and everything you see reinforces exactly. that viewpoint. Exactly, and I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but That's I can't, I think about the analysts, like the whole mm. half of the house of the CIA, these are intelligence analysts that are sorting through all the information that's coming in through the different sources we talked about, signals intelligence, uh, through satellites, through human intelligence, open source, and they have to constantly question themselves. Uh, confirmation bias this is what i think what's mm-hmm. going on i mean and you th- their job at the end of the day is to provide the president and other senior us policymakers with good intelligence and of course you always put caveats about around it but it's becoming that so much harder understanding mm. that the, the 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 world the the water in which this is all swimming is far more murkier than it ever has been. 
And in the past, there was a certain amount of credibility that our intelligence services had. I don't think they ever had it easy, certainly in my lifetime or since the Nixon era. Uh, rightly, they've been under scrutiny from Congress. But today, the members of Congress can find information that supports any viewpoint that they hold. So you're yeah. talking about confirmation bias on like a superhuman level in Congress. Yeah. Uh, any member of Congress can come in equipped with rebuttal arguments that they find conveniently uh, on the web or their, their staff can dig up for them. And this has got to make the job of being a, a national intelligence officer even more difficult because now you've got to deal with a highly politicized environment where anyone can find any argument, any kind of document to support any argument, any opinion. Uh, and all you're trying to do is come in and say, here's an intelligence assessment. And I'm sure it must be 10 times more difficult these days to deal with Congress because half of them are skeptical, half of them are equipped with talking points. And some of that stuff is pure disinformation. Look, the foundation of a democracy has to be truth and facts. And we have seen, and, and it's been increasing over the last at least decade, 15 years, a real erosion in the U.S. governments or the American public's trust in government institutions across the board, whether it's Congress, uh, whether it's the Fed, whether it's the military, the church. Uh, we have been assaulted uh, constantly by we they've been shown to lie and to be wrong and and uh we've been encouraged in fact by political leaders don't trust the government um yeah, and, and yeah and uh so we find ourselves where we are today where democracy what we what we thought this great experiment was over 250 years ago is now in quite whether its longevity is being questioned, can we stand? Yeah. Can we withhold? There's a rising number of people who believe that we should not be a democracy. They actually want some sort of, uh, you know, centralized control. Um, okay, before we delve into that, though, uh, what I'm trying to drive to here is a question about artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm going to frame it like this. So on this show, what happens a lot when we talk about artificial intelligence is we hear the common fear that artificial intelligence or some form of deep learning or maybe generative AI is going to displace workers. So it's gonna have a negative impact on workers. There's an alternative view, there's a counter view. Uh, it's not as widely shared, but it's the optimistic viewpoint. And that is that these technologies actually confer superpowers on the people who use them. Uh, I am a user of artificial intelligence tools. I happen to like them. I think they do superpower people if you embrace them and put them to work. But I can also see the argument where if you, you know, if you choose not to embrace them, you probably will get displaced, not by a machine, but by a person who uses the tools well. Mm -hmm. So in my own life, uh, and actually everyone I know is embracing these tools and using them as much as they can. Tell me how it is inside of the espionage community and the intelligence services. Is AI viewed as a threat? Is it going to displace workers or is it a superpower? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I think of any new technology that presents itself always has the ability for the greater good as well as a greater evil. Take, for example, uh, nuclear fission, you know, when they figured out how to split the atom and, the, and tremendous energy that was released. Well, nuclear power, the fantastic, rather than rely exclusively on, on uh, petroleum products. Of course, the flip side to that, the really dark side, is 
nuclear weapons and our ability to blow ourselves up. So here we are, fast forward 50 some 60 years later uh, after that advent, and here we are on the brink, and we we really are only at the very baby steps of artificial intelligence. Um, already we have seen the incredible things that it can do, for instance, in medicine, as doctors are literally operating on patients' brains, they're using artificial intelligence to tell them how how far to go, what to do as in, it's it's incredible. On the flip side of that, in intelligence world, just one example would be deep fakes, where you have, a leader of a country appearing to say something that is something he or she never said, but it causes great popular reaction, you know, that benefits a group versus another. Uh, so in the intelligence world, they are, they are putting all of this in, obviously. And these are the, I'm sure as you and I are speaking right now, there are rooms uh, in the CIA, at the director's office, in the Pentagon, at the White House Situation Room, talking about the very same things. No one, there's no answer on this yet. Uh, how, but how we choose from a regulatory side of Congress, uh, we've already seen a parade of some AI leaders, thought leaders before Congress, um, talk about this. How do we choose to regulate this? Already, it's it's we already know that most members of Congress, certainly in the Senate, are I don't know what's the average age like seventy two. They don't even use email on a regular basis, much less social media. TikTok, that's for our kids. Um, <laughs> uh, and so they were shocked to find out that it was owned by China. And yeah, but um, so. I really, Congress is so, not to harp on that, so dysfunctional right now. They don't, as yeah. we speak, there is no speaker. They can literally do none of the people's business. Uh, and we are in a world facing tremendous challenges. And this is a big one, Robert, artificial intelligence. How are we, as the world's leading democracy, going to provide uh, leadership on this issue? What does this look like? Okay, so you are an expert in nuclear nonproliferation. And you've got a keen interest in artificial intelligence. You're actually gathering a group of experts on the subject in Santa Fe next in, in a, next month. And yeah, uh, I have a question for you that our audience is definitely thinking about right now. Which things should we be more concerned with? Nuclear weapon proliferation or the advent of artificial intelligence? Which one oh, presents yeah. a big and more present threat? Oh, uh, well, given my background and my what I've done my whole adult life, I have to go with the nuclear threat. Why? Because the threat is here right now. It is imminent, a miscalculation, an accident. Uh, we've just gotten lucky so far. We have just gotten lucky. The near misses of <laughs> unintended nuclear explosion are in the multitudes, in the dozens. It's when you start reading about them, we've just gotten lucky. So, uh, which is not to, you know, artificial intelligence. I, I, I'm i just only beginning to, to figure it out and get my, read about it and think about it in serious terms. So, uh, but what's right in front of our noses right now, and we can do something about it, is the nuclear threat. Well, what can we do about it? Because a lot of people are concerned that Iran is in this place where they're now starting to enrich uranium and 
on the way to building a nuclear weapon. Um, many people say that that's actually imminent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There. Uh, what can we do to stop them? We've tried sanctions. We've tried to negotiate. We've tried every possible thing we can. Um, I don't think the United States is in a position to invade. I know some people on the right, that's their kind of fantasy, but it's a very large country with a huge population under the age of 25. It'd be very difficult for any country to try to invade them. What can we do about that? I'm going to pull back the lens and answer on a a broader uh, embrace of that question. What can we do about the nuclear question in I think there's three things that the United States could do right away uh, with congressional action and presidential action that would significantly lower the temperature. And that would be uh, end sole use uh, authority, which means right now the United States, there's only one person, the president of the United States, who has authority to launch nuclear weapons. When we have uh, impulsive presidents, reckless presidents, uh, that that possibility becomes much more obvious. So we should do away with that I, um, because that is predicated on uh, the notion that um, there's not much time, you know, that the, the Soviets back in the day were going to launch a uh, bolt out of the blue and you needed one person to respond immediately. That is no longer the case. The second mm-hmm. thing we could do is declare sole purpose. That is, the United States says we will never use a nuclear weapon offensively. We will only use it uh, in a defensive action. Um, that's I thought that was our policy. No, it's not. Yeah. Um, and it's never oh, been so. We maintain strategic ambiguity around that. We yes. We don't oh, there's it. a lot. And there's a lot. And the third one would take ICBMs off uh, what's called launch on warning. These ICBMs mm. are ridiculous. We don't need them anymore. They are the ones in the silos in some Nebraska cornfield. Uh, you can be sure that Russia and every other major power knows exactly where they are. It's like a big target. Uh, our we have the United States now has about 5,200 nuclear warheads. Um, mm. We our defense is more than adequately covered uh, by our nuclear launch submarines, for instance. Um, so those three steps, which I'm not saying they're simple, but they're pretty clear cut and it could be achievable, would do a remarkable amount to lower the temperature to keep our future safe. But that's encouraging. So those are steps that the United States can take unilaterally without having to engage anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the mechanisms right now to deal with this issue? There's the UN uh, Nuclear Energy Commission, I think, has not been ineffective, right? They they actually have been. No, they, they do. The to do but the actions, you know, uh, they're always over, got as a tool to go to other countries. So over the last decade or so, all the guardrails, the arms control treaties that have been built up over decades have gone to the wayside. The one that is, there's two that are left that are worth anything. One would be the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And the second one mm-hmm. would be what's called the New START Treaty, which I believe is due to uh, to end in 2026. And the Russians are like, you know, we're not going to re-up again where we are today. Yeah, I saw, I noticed um, that. Uh, tell me yeah. what the implications of that are. The Russians choose not to uh, renew that. Uh bad. <laughs> we're, we're screwed. I mean, <laughs> the technical term is we're screwed. Um, because Great. Uh, yeah. Um, unfortunately, Biden, for those of us who care about these things, who initially was really good on uh, trying to 
bring down the nuclear temperature, if you will, the threat, uh, their new nuclear posture review has just poured trillions more into the so-called modernization, more nuclear weapons, more, you know, more into the, as you, the, the intelligence industrial complex, uh, I believe nuclear weapons to be immoral. Uh, they do not make us more safe. And we have more than enough to blow up the world many times over. Mm. Wow. All right, folks, that is it. Uh, Valerie Plame, former CIA operative, a, uh, advocate for uh, advancing the understanding of artificial intelligence in the intelligence community. Um, super fun to have you on the futures. Thanks for joining us here. Of course, I framed that question maybe in a false dichotomy where I said, is it, you know, should we be worried about AI or nuclear weapons? It occurred to me as you were speaking, maybe the answer is both and because yeah. the combination of the two could be even more perilous. No Let's leave kidding. that for a future episode. Uh, if, folks, if you're interested in attending uh, Valerie's event, it will be taking place in Santa Fe on the month in next month, uh, November 10, 11, and 12. And Valerie, where can we find out more about that event and where can people find out more about you? Yes, you can go to spiesliesnukes.com. It has all the information on the speakers, how to buy tickets, a little bit about me. And uh, I just am so appreciative of being able to be on your program today. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. Thanks for, it's interesting subject matter for us. Uh, it's not often I get to talk to someone who can explain how the intelligence services work. Not sure I understand it. Maybe we need to do another <laughs> round. Super thrilled to have you here in the Futurists. And folks who are listening, I want to give a big shout out to Kevin Hirshhorn and Lisbeth Severance. Uh, they are the producers who make the show possible. Thanks to everybody at Provoke Media uh, for making the show and distributing it. And most of all, thank you to the listeners. Uh, the folks who listen to the show are the ones who help us help other people discover it. Uh, one way to do that is by giving us a five-star review. If you've enjoyed this episode and other episodes, the five-star reviews are important because that's how people find content on the, on the podcasting platforms. And we do appreciate every single person who's done that. We encourage you to do it and share it with a friend. Thank you all very much. And we will see you in the future. We'll be back next week with yet another Futurist. I'm Rob Tursik signing off for this week. See you in the future. Well, that's it for the Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.